All right. Good morning. So glad to be with you this morning. We, uh, oops, uh, we have, uh, we've come back now to suffering again uh, in 1 Peter chapter 4. So if you're not there already, would you open your copy of God's Word to 1 Peter chapter 4, looking at verses 12 through 19. If you're using one of those blue church Bibles located underneath the seat around you, you can turn in that Bible to page 1016. That'll bring you right to our text. This is part four. This is the final part. I'm not coming back here again. Uh, next time we, we're in Peter, we'll be in chapter five, the final chapter of 1 Peter. So I want to wrap this up. I have a lot of material. So I'm going to speak a little more quickly than I normally do. So are you ready? You got to stick with me because we're going to, normally I try to cover one or two main points. We've got more than one or two points. So there'll be things you got to think about. And I know you can do it though. I know you can uh, track with me. So let's get at it. We're going to read the text, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Interesting thing. We don't plan this kind of stuff, but the sovereignty of God, we were talking about all of that. And, and Chris mentions it just seems to be a focus this morning. And sure enough, that's how we'll close with the sovereignty of God in this section. So it's going to be a beautiful, uh, beautiful time together in the, in the uh, Word of God this morning. 1 Peter chapter 4, I'll read verses 12 through 19, do some review to catch you up or to remind you, and then we'll pick up where we left off last time. You good? Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's our text this morning. So I titled this sermon, Comforts for the Afflicted, <clears throat> as you know. Or uh, another title could be Consolations for the Afflicted. Uh, consolations is a source of, uh, if you give consolations, it's a source of comfort uh, to somebody who is upset or disappointed. Sometimes in uh, game shows, they give consolation prizes to the losers, right? Uh, that's the idea. They're kind of upset because they didn't win. All right, here's something to comfort your loss. So in the same sense, these are we're try I'm trying from the text to draw out consolations that the Apostle Peter is providing to his readers who are hurting. They're hurting. They need some comfort in their suffering for Jesus Christ. So, verse 12, the first comfort we looked at was simply the fact that the suffering of persecution, which is what is the subject here, this kind, that kind of suffering, is not something alien or strange to the Christian life. In other words, to those Christians that Peter was writing to, or even to Christians today who suffer for the sake of Christ, you're not doing something wrong. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong about what you're doing. That's not why you're suffering. You're doing something right. In fact, you can 
be expected, or you can expect as a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, to one degree or another, depending on the climate in which you find yourself, the world, the particular uh, nation, you will find yourself suffering to one degree or another. And that's not, that sh you shouldn't think that to be strange. So take comfort in that. The second comfort was that God has a good purpose behind this suffering. That's also in verse 12. Peter refers to it as a fiery ordeal or trial. And it comes upon them, which implies that it's God's sovereignty bringing it upon them. He's in control of all things. It comes upon them for their testing. And I told you, I explained to you that testing there, that word, you could think of it as proving, approving. It's, um, it's, it's metaphorical language that Peter is using here, just like he did in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. And he's, it's picturing this process called fire assaying, fire assaying. It's a process using intense heat uh, that was used in the ancient world and continues to be used today. They use intense heat to, and they apply it to materials such as ore to prove or to determine the precious metal content of that substance. And so what Peter's saying is God, God is uh, bringing these things into your life, these fiery trials, to, to prove your precious metal content, which would be your saving faith, to demonstrate to you beyond a doubt in your own mind that you are his because you persevere in these sufferings. You're not only living for Christ, which is bringing the suffering, but you continue to live for him in spite of the suffering. And as that fiery trial, as you walk through it, God is able to cause you to come through it, and it affirms to you the reality of a saving faith that perseveres. And that, that validation of your faith strengthens your hope. It strengthens your hope. So, Second comfort, guys, listen, first, it's not strange. Don't think it's strange. You're doing nothing wrong, and God has a good purpose behind these trials that you're experiencing. He'll use them to strengthen you in the inner man. He'll bring you through them. He'll demonstrate to you the reality of that saving faith that endures to the end. Now, I was thinking about that. Remember, this is what keeps happening is as I keep coming back to this text, I keep thinking through it and maybe adding some thoughts. But one of the thoughts I had was through compromise in the Christian faith, as we compromise, as we maybe don't stand for Jesus, don't speak for Jesus when we should, persecution then is avoided, right? So I said before that on one level, the U.S., living in the U.S., we do avoid a certain degree of persecution because of our government, because of the land in which we live, which is a good thing, beloved. It's a good thing. But some of our persecution or avoidance of it comes because of compromise, because of compromise. But I would tell you that for the Christian, that compromise could not go on indefinitely. It wouldn't go on indefinitely because the true Christian in his compromise will be convicted. He'll be convicted. The Spirit will work in his or her heart. 
And if that conviction doesn't bring about <coughs> a change, <coughs> God, the scriptures tell us, brings discipline into that believer's life. That is if they're a child of God. He'll bring discipline. He'll bring you to a place where you'll live for him. Not perfectly, but more so. And as you do, you'll experience persecution. So I would say that for the true Christian, suffering is inevitable. It's, it's inevitable. I don't know how you should say it. It's inevitable. It's going to come one way or another. You might avoid it here or there through compromise, but for the true Christian, you'll eventually come to a place of repentance, and because you begin to live for him, even in a society that is not completely hostile to Christianity, the one we live in, you will to one degree or another suffer, okay? So suffering is inevitable. But the takeaway of all that, of this idea that these fiery trials come upon you and God has a good purpose in it, is that you do not suffer in vain for Christ. <clears throat> it's not pointless. Rather, God uses it to prove to you your faith and improve your faith, which I don't know about you, but I, my faith always needs improving, any of you there, 100% in your faith? You're just like rock solid? Anybody? No. We have doubts and struggles, and so God works and does, uses these things to, to uh, strengthen us. The third comfort we looked at last week was the joy that comes from knowing that you will share in Christ's glory, which actually is a knowledge that comes through the reality of suffering for Christ. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 13, but rejoice in so far as, or to the degree that, recognizing that not every Christian will suffer the same, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings. And I explained to you last time, Christ's sufferings is the idea that, or sharing in those sufferings is as representatives of Christ, which is what Christians are, to one degree or another, we will experience the same hatred that Christ experienced and would experience if he were here. In other words, if he were here and he came back, the rebels against God would pour their hatred out and their wrath towards him. But because he's not here, then who do they have left to pour that wrath towards? His representatives. That is, if they're truly his representatives. So again, if you experience no persecution at all, then are you really his representative? Are you? But the one who does represent him truly, genuinely, can know even in that suffering that they, through that suffering, which demonstrates the reality that they are united to him, that they are his representative, they can know then that they will also share in his glory. And so in that, they can have joy. To share in Christ's suffering, beloved, it confirms to us, as I said, that we are indeed Christ. And it is, as one writer said, to be on a sure road to share in his consequent glory hereafter. And therefore, we rejoice. That's what Paul, this is all last week, if you want to go back and get all the details, but that's what Paul said in Romans 8, 17. From a Christian book that I read this week titled, Suffering Well. Suffering Well in regard to this particular 
subject of rejoicing in our suffering, knowing about the glory of God that we will share in, the glory of Christ, this is what the writer said, called suffering well. When we get hurt for doing the right thing, in this case, living for Christ, proclaiming Christ, following Christ, exalting Christ, when we get hurt for doing the right thing, the comfort of the gospel is that the pain is a sign of who we truly are. It's a sign. Then he goes on. Just as an athlete who never aches after training is not a real athlete. Huh? I find I have a joke. You know, active wear is a very popular thing now. These, this, this clothing that it seems like you would wear it to work out. But people wear it, it's a joke. It's only, they wear it for everything but working out. So are they really, they look like an athlete, but are they really an athlete? No. There's no sweat in that clothing, you know? So he goes on to say, so a Christian unmarked by suffering is not a real child of God. I would agree with that. And again, remember what kind of suffering we're talking about. Not the suffering that every person experiences in this world. So we're not talking about disease. Believer, unbeliever, they both get cancer. We're not even talking about necessarily economic hardship. It could be because you're following Christ. Believer, unbeliever suffers economic hardship, but it could be. It could, you could, particularly in that situation, be suffering economic hardship because you follow Christ, because you're denied employment, denied to work somewhere, or you're held back because of your faithfulness to Jesus. But the suffering we're talking about specifically is suffering for the sake of, of Christ, your loyalty to him. So the book goes on, and it quotes passages, including 1 Peter 4 that we're in, 13, and then he adds this, it is impossible to read the scriptures without realizing that living in Christ will mean suffering. It's impossible. But it's also impossible to miss the promise of suffering. Those who truly belong to Jesus will share not just in the pain of his ministry in this world, but also in the joy of his ministry in the next. Amen? Amen. And that's why one can rejoice in their suffering for Christ. Knowing, knowing that they will share in the glory hereafter. Okay? So it's another comfort. Now we pick up where we left off. Peter goes on to give a specific example of suffering as a Christian. And again, he provides another consolation for the afflicted. Look back at your text, 1 Peter 4.14. If you are insulted, insulted. So the tense of the verb here implies uh, ongoing. So if you, you could read it this way. If you are being insulted. And the word means verbal abuse of some sort. Verbal abuse. Okay? So again, when we talk about persecution, maybe all we think about is like getting beat up or being killed. We think of the martyrs. But persecution comes in many forms. And so in this case, Peter's just addressing something that they were experiencing. He's giving an example. Just insults, verbal abuse, slander, 
evil speech, harsh speech. If you are insulted or if you are being insulted for, so not just insulted, right? That's not what he's saying, but insulted for the name of Christ. Or you could read it, or in connection with that way, in, uh, with that name. So if you are being insulted in the connection with the name of Christ, or for the name of Christ, you are what? That's what it says. That's what it says. But why? Well, we got to finish reading. Because the spirit of glory and of God rest, and again, same tense as uh, verb tense as insulted, is resting, you could read it, upon you. It's re- he is resting upon you. I like uh, another translation of this last part. Uh, another Bible puts it, the spirit of glory, who is the spirit of God? That would be, a, I think, a better way to translate the text there. You are blessed because the spirit of glory, who is the spirit of God? So it's two characteristics of the spirit that rest on Christians. He is the Holy Spirit, the spirit of glory, the spirit of, who is the spirit of God. Now, insulted for the name of Christ. Insulted for the name of Christ. So it's the same idea of sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Here's just a, uh, an example, a, a real example of that. One writer says, because their enemies, that is Peter's readers' enemies, because their enemies hated that name, that is the name of Christ, and all it stood for, right? When the readers proclaimed and exalted that blessed name, hatred against the readers expressed itself in assaults on them. And these assaults, though, we know here at least are uh, verbal assaults. So verbal abuse, as I said, slander, defamation of character, all of those things. That's what Peter is addressing. So when you are being insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. The word blessed, as many of you know, can mean happy. It can mean happy. It can also mean fortunate or well-off. Fortunate or well-off. My dear sister over here, uh, senior, it's very common for me to ask her, how's she, how she doing? And she says, I am blessed. Okay? I am blessed. Uh, that, that is true of the Christian always. In the sense of fortunate and well-off. Fortunate and well-off. And here... Peter is is reminding his Christian readers, even in the midst of uh, the assaults, the verbal assaults that are coming at them because of their stand for Christ, that they are blessed. But he he ties that specifically uh, to a fact about the Spirit of God. But back to this, the blessing thing. Like like I said, it can be understood as happy or fortunate and well-off. In Acts 26, too, just to show you, Paul there, before King Agrippa, says, I consider myself fortunate, same exact word, but translated there, fortunate, that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make a defense today against all the accusations of the Jews. So he's saying, same exact Greek word, as I said, 
It can be translated either way, happy or fortunate or even well-off. Uh, and again, so fortunate and well-off is how I would understand it in 1 Peter 4.14. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are fortunate or well-off. Now, it is certainly not hard to understand Paul's use of the word blessed in, for instance, Romans 4.7. There, the Apostle Paul says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered, right? So that's easy for us, right? Of course they are blessed. They are indeed as well off as one could get. They are forgiven before God. That makes sense. But Peter says, blessed is the one who is being insulted for the name of Christ, Right? They are most fortunate, and they are incredibly well-off. But why? It's not, he doesn't just end there, hey, you're, you're well-off. You know, you're not well-off because you're, you're being insulted. You're well-off because the one being insulted, because they're standing for Christ, has the Spirit of God, the Spirit of glory, resting upon them. That is why they are well-off. One writer says, in contrast to the external storm of abuse and insult is the inner presence of the Spirit. What a contrast. And listen, this is cool. These, uh, one writer points out that these words in Peter about the Spirit resting on Christians, it echoes the messianic prophecy of Isaiah 11.2. Of Isaiah 11.2. There, Isaiah, speaking about the branch that comes out of Jesse, which is a reference to the Messiah, who we know to be Jesus Christ, there, the word rest is the same exact word that Peter uses here when the writer of Isaiah is speaking about the Spirit resting on the Messiah, this, this chosen one, this promised one. Same exact word. Um, when you look at, there's a version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. So it's a Greek translation of the Old Testament. That same Greek word that's there, and, and Peter was familiar with the Septuagint, that same Greek word there for rest is used right here when he refers to Christians suffering for the sake of Christ and telling them you're blessed because the Spirit rests or is resting on you. Um, there it says in Isaiah 11:2. Speaking of the Messiah, prophesying of the Messiah, it says, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest, same word, upon him, that is Jesus, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. It's a reference to the Holy Spirit resting on the Son of God. So one writer just points out that Peter, very familiar with the Old Testament, sees this messianic blessing extending also to those who bear the name of the Messiah. So, the same Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of glory that rested on suffering Jesus, that empowered him for his ministry, now rests on those who follow Jesus in this fallen world and consequently share in his sufferings. But they just don't share in his sufferings, they share in the Spirit. So Christian, suffering for the name of Christ or in connection with that name, 
You may not have the favor of other human beings, sinful human beings, rebellious human beings, but what you do have is the favor of God himself for his spirit, the spirit of glory, the spirit of splendor and majesty, the spirit of amazing might, of amazing power. There is no greater power. That spirit is resting upon you. And the implication is this. As the Holy Spirit did for our Lord, he will supernaturally strengthen you, minister to you, empower you, comfort you, and enable you to persevere and remain faithful through your suffering, bringing you through to the very end and into the glory that is promised to all who belong to Jesus Christ. See the comfort there? The Spirit, the Spirit of glory who is the Spirit of God is resting upon you. Now to verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief. (laughs) So here, Peter opens up with two specific and fairly serious crimes, right? Goes on, or an evildoer, all right? So this is more general. The word implies any other kind of criminal or wrongdoer. Or, so we've got murderer, thief, or any other kind of criminal, or, and you can translate it as the NIV does, or even as, so you got this grouping, murderer, thief, or any other kind of criminal activity or wrongdoing, or even as, not in this grouping necessarily, but even as a meddler, a meddler. The New American Standard Bible translates it troublesome meddler. The New King James Bible translates it a busybody in other people's matters. Hmm. That's interesting. Now listen, I want to talk about that. You're, you know what a murderer and a thief is, and yeah, that's clear, and any other kind of criminal. But he throws this in, this meddler, and this word, translated meddler in the ESV, translated differently in other Bibles, it occurs nowhere else in the New Testament. Nowhere in the Septuagint, which I talked to you about, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Nowhere in other Greek literature before 1 Peter. So, I mean, and the reason that's important is when they're trying to figure out exactly how to understand a word, you reference the word in other places and see how it's used there in its context. So, there isn't that. So, when you look just at the word, though, and it's a conjunction, it's two words brought together. When you look at just the word, if you were to translate it just literally, what those words mean, it means watching over another's affairs. Watching over another's affairs or an overlooker of other people's matters. Therefore, this is why uh, many English translations have translated something to reflect that. Meddler, busybody, troublesome meddler. Okay. So you have here really Peter's arranging these terms like in descending order of guilt. Murderer, thief, common criminal, 
but even a meddler. Uh, his list is not intended to be comprehensive, right? He's not including every possible uh, crime or wrongdoing or immoral activity, but he does go <laughs> from murderer, it's kind of, you know, shocking a little bit, he goes from murderer all the way down to meddler, from the crime of unjustly taking another person's life to the, basically, the, the unwarranted, this is how I would define the word, the un, that is meddler, unwarranted and agitating intrusion into the affairs of other people's lives, or sticking your nose where it doesn't belong. That's a common way to, uh, maybe you've heard it referred to, or wrongdoing by meddling in affairs which are not properly one's concern. Others have explained it this way, just as an agitator in society, an agitator in society, or a social nuisance. So one writer says this, and I think it's good and helpful. Uh, Peter realized that most Christians will not be guilty of obvious sins like murder and stealing. So it doesn't mean a Christian couldn't fall into the, one of those things. It's possible. But he goes on, and so he concluded by encouraging believers to even refrain from annoying others. If believers act like busybodies, they would be considered to be pests who deserve ostracism and mistreatment. Peter wanted believers to refrain from acting tactlessly and without social graces. And I think, I think that's right. I think that's right. So listen, you know, if you're suffering for this cause, fine. But you should not be suffering for evil. You should not suffer as a murderer or as a thief or a criminal or even as a, a troublemaker. Just sticking your nose where it doesn't belong, stirring up trouble in society or, or in your family or in the church or in your workplace. It's interesting because in other passages, that issue is addressed. It seems to be a problem among humanity. And Facebook makes it even more complicated. I'll just say that. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12 says, the Apostle Paul says, make it your ambition, this is written to Christians, to lead a quiet life. Quiet doesn't mean you don't talk. Quiet there means a peaceful life, not a disturbing life, not causing uproars all the time. To mind your own business and to work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. So the idea outsiders there is those outside the church. Live in such a way uh, that they can at least respect your, how you function. They may, they may not like you for your stand for Christ, but let that be the issue and not because you just like to cause problems. Or you're not willing to work, so you're always begging when you can work, that kind of thing. There, you won't get respect even from outsiders, so live in such a way that that's not a distraction, that's not what they're going after you for. Just common social graces. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3, again, uh, commanding there the church, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. 
Okay, same idea, same thinking there. And Paul actually has a, it's a play on words. He uses the word toil, laboring. So you're not, you're not laboring at work, but you're laboring and meddling. You're prying. You're excessively interested in a person's private affairs. So, anyway. Unlike the suffering that the Christian should expect to encounter, right, for following Christ, what we learn here is there is a suffering that should have no place in the Christian's life. That is suffering as a result of unrighteousness or evil doing of any kind, of any kind. That kind of suffering, suffering for evil doing, is entirely avoidable for the Christian, hence the command, let none of you suffer. Let none of you suffer in this way for being a murderer or a thief or a criminal or a moral person or even a meddler, stirring up trouble. And so I, I would cap it out this way. One writer just says this, if a Christian suffers, that is for Christ, it should be because of their union with Jesus, not with evil. Okay? So that's, you know, oh, I'm, you know, I'm suffering I'm suffering for Jesus. Are you? You know, are you? Check it. Make sure. Are you? Or are you just like rude? Are you just rude? And then, you, and then people push back against that. People push back or they ostracize you because you're rude. Or you, you don't approach people lovingly. You, your tact is bad. You have no social graces. You're you know, busy stirring it up instead of seeking to live a peaceable life in honor of the Lord and speaking the truth, yes, but always in love. Huh? And so I think, I think some folks think they're suffering for Jesus, but they're suffering for evil or wrongdoing. They're suffering because they're, they're agitating unnecessarily folks around them. And that's, we, we should not be guilty of that. It's a shame when you hear people say, well, unbelievers are kinder and nicer than some believers I've met. That's wrong. Okay? You're going to suffer, but make sure you're suffering because of your union with Jesus, not union with evil. All right? So, now, 16. Whew. Yet... So don't suffer for that. Yet, yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. All right, quickly. Christian. Christian. That was the name given to followers of Christ. Most think it was given to them as a derogatory term. Uh, it's, not an, it's not a name that Christians took to themselves to later on. And they begin identifying under that name, Christian. Uh, we read in Acts eleven twenty six. it's in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians in that town. Now, what does it mean? What does the term actually mean? This is good. You may know already. Fantastic. Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It does not mean little Christ. And I only say that because it has been explained that way. It does not mean that. It does not mean little Christ. The word simply means follower of Christ. Follower of Christ. That is what it means. Actually, you could even add the word partisan 
follower, partisan follower. Uh, a partisan is a strong supporter of a party or a cause or a person, a partisan. And I say that because the word Christian is formed just like the word Herodians, Herodians. So in Mark 3, 6 and Mark 12, 13, there is a reference to Herodians. You know what that means? It means a partisan follower or supporter of Herod and his family. There were those who faithfully supported them. All right, now look. We use the word partisan, so that's why I think it's good for you to think about this, really a partisan follower of Christ. I think it's good to think that way, add that word. We use the word partisan in politics. If you listen to any kind of CNN, Fox, whatever, you'll hear it regularly. Again, in politics, we would say a partisan is a committed member of a political party, okay? So in a, in a multi-party system such as ours, the term is used for politicians who strongly support their party's policies and are reluctant to compromise with their political opponents. That's a partisan. So Republicans, Democrats. So you'll hear something like this. Someone will say the legislation concerning our politics was bipartisan. What does that mean? It means that it involved the agreement or cooperation of two political parties that usually oppose each other's policies. It's bipartisan. You with me? So I think it's good to think that way. Partisan, devoted follower of a person who's unwilling to compromise with this party's stand or person's stand or convictions. I like that. Peter's saying, listen, but the one who suffers for their loyalty and devotion to Christ. I mean, you think about it. There are, you think about people who are part of the Republican Party and part of the Democratic Party, right? Just, you see this like they'll die for them, you know? They're just so committed to their cause or, I mean, it's not always true, but, you know, generally speaking, they're so, and they won't compromise at all, theoretically, with <laughs> um, their party's stand and convictions, but... Now think about Christ. A Christian truly is a, is a partisan follower of that one. So the one who suffers for their loyalty and devotion to that one, or as a partisan of Christ, or as a Christian, is not to be ashamed. Now look, note this. He doesn't simply say, don't be ashamed to be a Christian, although that's true too. Don't be ashamed to be a Christian. You are devoted to the king of kings. Don't be ashamed. But look what he says here. He says, don't be ashamed if you suffer because you are one. Don't be ashamed if you suffer because you are one. One writer says, the Christian should not harbor any feeling of shame as would be natural if caught in any of the evils mentioned in verse 15. See, there's shame there. You get caught and you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, a meddler. Shame on you. But you're suffering because you stand for Christ? No shame, baby. Don't take any of it. Don't pick that up. 
They have no reason to be ashamed or feel shame or, or you could define it as be distressed by feelings of disgrace. There's no disgrace in that. That's glory. It is not dishonorable to suffer for Christ, but rather honorable. That is in the eyes of God. It is honorable to be an ardent supporter, follower, and champion of Jesus Christ. And as a result, share in the Lord's suffering. Beloved, it's, it's not, this is encouragement. It's not important what other people might think or the world thinks. Look at that fool suffering for that one. It's not important what they think. It's important only what God thinks in this matter. One writer says, The world may think suffering for conscientious adherence to Christianity is disgraceful. Look at that idiot. But actually, it is an honor in God's sight and should be so in the eyes of Christians as well. Right? You remember the early church? They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. And so should we. So one should not be ashamed to suffer as a Christian. To the contrary, Peter says they should glorify God in that name. And again, the way name here I would understand is Christian, in that name, that identity. Now, in the name could be understood as in connection with that name. And if we're taking the ESV translation, in that name, and you could understand it in connection with that name. And so the sense here could be that the one being reviled slandered, spoken evil against, verbally abused as a Christian because of their stand for Christ, that is, should so act and speak that God is continually honored in his or her life. So they should glorify God in that name. That is a way to understand it. But I'm going to tell you that I lean towards understanding it a little different. There are two translations that translate this last phrase differently. And I lean towards this way and because I think it captures the contrast that I believe Peter's trying to make. 1 Peter 4.16 in the NIV says this, However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. The NET reads it this way, But if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but glorify God that you bear such a name. That that name is attached to you, partisan of Christ, ardent supporter, champion, defender of Jesus Christ. If you suffer as a Christian, you must not hang your head down in shame, but rather lift it up in praise to God for the great privilege, indeed the greatest privilege that one could have of bearing that name. That's what I think the contrast is. That's what I think Peter is communicating. One writer says, union with that name outwardly may involve an environment of suffering, but inwardly it is accepted as an opportunity to praise God. All right, we're almost there. Additional consolation. Here it comes. Now, this section, I would say maybe is a little more trickier. Uh, to understand. So I'm going to take a drink of water real quick. 
Here we go. We're almost there. We're almost to the finish line. So follow along with me. I'm going to slow it down just a little. Look back at your Bibles. Verse 17. Peter then says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Pause. For. For begins this statement. For generally is referencing back to something just said and giving an explanation. Generally. So I believe it's referring back to verse 16. That's the closest connection we have. And I think it explains or further elaborates on Peter's statement, don't be ashamed of your suffering, but praise God that you bear that name. So hold that thought. We'll come back to that. I believe this gives you a reason to praise God that you bear that name, okay? And not to be ashamed of your suffering. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Pause. Household of God. Household of God. Literally, it says house of God. Oikos of God. House of God. Now, God's house, that terminology, God's house in the Old Testament, because it was referred to as God's house, was almost always a reference to his temple, the temple of God, that where God was and where the people of God met and the priest operated, the temple. God's house, okay? So household of God. I think house of God would be better. Um, so follow along with me. But in the New Testament, God's house is called the church. It's called the church. 1 Timothy 3.15, you can write that down. So in the New Testament, this house where God resides is called the church. Again, not a building, but the people of God. The people of God. There is where God resides and locally collected together. There he resides. All right? There are his priests, the people of God. You with me so far? All right. Now, this is where I just want to point this out to you. I reference translations, but I've tried to explain to you guys not all translations are equal in uh, what they do. So, for instance, the NIV, it's a good translation. But it tends more to interpret the text than just giving you, I still use it, I reference it, instead of just giving you more of a literal translation of what's there, they, they provide interpretation. So here, the NIV interprets the phrase family of God. This is why this isn't helpful just, in my mind, to, when you're studying, to just read the NIV, because family of God, you miss something. Family of God is an interpretation. That is not a translation. Translation closer would be house of God, household of God, okay. House of God, why? Well, family of God conceals the Old Testament background of the term, which happens to be important right here. It's important. So hold on. House of God. For it is time for judgment to begin at the house of God, the household of God, at the church, but remember the term. It would take us back to the Old Testament. Okay, you with me? And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And then as support for what he just said, what I just read in verse 17, he then draws on wording from Proverbs eleven thirty one. Specifically, he draws on, it's not an exact quote, and he draws from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of that Old Testament. And he says, and, it's in support of what he just said, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Okay, what is being communicated? This is so cool. 
This is so cool. So what most, many commentators point out is that what Peter says here pictures what is written in Ezekiel 9 and Malachi 3. We're not going to go there. You can write it down. I'm just going to talk to you about it. Ezekiel 9 and Malachi 3. And there's language literally taken right out of Ezekiel 9 and put right here. And then the concepts that we see in 1 Peter 4, 12, or this section right here, they, they picture Malachi 3. So let me explain that, okay? In Ezekiel 9, and you can go back and read this. It's so cool. Ezekiel 9, Malachi 3. Go back and read it. Not right now. In Ezekiel 9, the Lord comes and he judges the nation, the sinners within Israel. But he begins at his sanctuary. He starts there. He begins at the temple. He judges them first. Okay? So the language that's used in Ezekiel 9, 6 specifically, I'll begin at my sanctuary, it's, it's basically the same that judgment will begin with the household of God. It's the same exact, it's the same type of language. So I believe that Peter's drawing the language from there. Now, while the language is similar, the theology that we see here in 1 Peter is, is actually different. For in Ezekiel, if you read that story, rebellious sinners are being destroyed. They're all being wiped out. He starts at his temple, he's wiping them out, and then he moves outside and begins to punish and bring wrath against all of all the sinners, all the rebels, okay? So that's not what's going on in 1 Peter, but there's some language there. Rather, what we see is what's going on in Malachi 3, okay? The background of Malachi 3 is very close to what Peter's message is here. When the Lord comes to his temple in Malachi 3, and he starts with his temple, he refines and purifies his people in the temple, and those then who are unrepentant sinners outside are destroyed. Unbelievers or rejecters of God. That's closer to what we see going on. In other words, God starts, you see the pattern. God starts with his people, with his temple, with his now New Testament church. And he brings his judgment there first. Then his judgment goes outside. Now, judgment. When you think of judgment, you might think of condemnation. Okay? You might think of condemnation. But the word judgment here in 1 Peter 4, 17 does not have to mean condemnation. In fact, when condemnation is spoken of, normally there's another word added to the word judgment. Kata. Against. So, it's a, so you have judgment, a sentence... And it's a sentence against when condemnation is used. So, for instance, in Romans 8, 1, therefore there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. It's katakrima. It's that word. Okay? But here it's just K-R-I-M-A, judgment. It's more general. It doesn't necessarily mean condemnation. It's broader. It can for, Listen, it can refer to a judgment which results in good and bad evaluations. It's a looking, it's a discerning, it's an evaluation. It may result in good or a bad evaluation and a judgment which may issue in approval. I might make a judgment and there might be approval or discipline or it could include condemnation. So, 
here we go. We'll tie all this together, hopefully. <laughs> the judgment which begin at God's house, or has begun at God's house, the church, so the same pattern that we see in the Old Testament, that judgment, that, that evaluation begins at God's house, that judgment will move from there to unbelievers, but when it gets to unbelievers, it will not be the refining fire or the purifying fire like we see in Malachi 3 that God brought for his people to purify them, to, you know, to work out what was bad in them or get those things away or even strengthen them, get out all the dross, all the other materials that are not precious metal. It will move, now that judgment moving outside, these are rejectors of God, that judgment will bring condemnation and death. Okay. So, one writer just points out what Peter is saying is God acts first to remove all that is inconsistent with his holy nature in his people. That's what's going on. That's what um, Peter is describing, and he's, he's using the, the, the terminology from the Old Testament, Ezekiel, and the picture in Malachi, I believe, to communicate that idea. Okay, because they would, you know, be familiar with these things. So you start with the church, judgment starts with the church, but eventually it moves out. It's a purifying, refining fire. It's a judgment of discipline. It's a disciplinary judgment that God brings on his people to conform them to the image of Jesus Christ, to make them holy, to work out all that is not holy in them. And then it moves outside to the outsiders, to those who hate God or are resistant to him, and to them... It brings condemnation. Now, verse 18. Verse 18, he says in support, and if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Okay, we're almost there. Scarcely. I, don't, I, I would not choose that word. Uh, the ESV chooses, chooses it, but not every translation does. Uh, the Greek word there can mean scarcely, like it's used in Romans 5, 7, but it can also mean with difficulty, with difficulty. So you'll see that in Acts 27, 7 through 8. You can write that down and look later. The New American Standard Bible, excellent translation, translates it with difficulty. I would prefer that translation. So I don't believe Peter was saying that the righteous are scarcely saved, because that's like barely uh, as if they were almost, as one writer says, consigned to destruction and were just pulled out from the flames. They just barely got in. I don't think that's what Peter's saying. Rather, what he meant is that the righteous are saved only with difficulty. Only with difficulty. The difficulty envisioned here is the fires of unjust suffering and divine purging. The discipline, disciplinary fires, that suffering that God, those fiery trials that God uses, not only to prove your faith, but to improve it. As those other metals are melted away, it's those other things that need to be melted away. What is left is that precious metal, but those other things in your life need to be melted away. And the fires of suffering for Christ have a way of doing that. So now, with all that... What is Peter saying? What is he saying? What comparison is he making? So looking back, and if the righteous 
is saved only with difficulty, this kind of difficulty that we've been talking about, this suffering, this pain, for the sake of Christ, then what will become of the ungodly and sinner? Those who reject him. When, when his judgment turns to them, if his own people are made to suffer as part of their salvation, what do you think is going to happen to those who hate him? Peter doesn't answer the question. He doesn't go there. He just says, consider that. One writer says, if the godly are saved through the purification of suffering, then the judgment of the ungodly and sinner must be horrific indeed. One writer puts it this way. He says, it is with painful difficulty that the redeemed endure to their final glory. So does anyone think that the godless man and the sinner who has lived his life without suffering for righteousness sake because he is unrighteous will simply die and go out of existence or be given a place in heaven because God is nothing but loving and forgiving? That is a foolish thought. Peter is saying that the ungodly's eternal suffering compared to the godly's temporal suffering is far greater. So, I think that is a comfort to the believer because he indeed should praise God that he bears that name and realize that his suffering has God's good purposes behind it and that it is only temporal. Because in the hereafter, he shares in the glory of Christ. No longer will he know suffering. But the unbeliever, the sinner, the ungodly, when God's judgment comes against them, when his evaluation comes against them, what do you think that's going to look like? It won't be a purifying fire. It'll be a fire of eternal torment. So praise God, Christian, that you bear that name. One writer says again, whatever difficulties believers may face in time, eternal suffering of unbelievers is incomparable. Our sufferings may seem great, but they do not hold a candle to what lies ahead for the lost. Finally, a little over, but here's the sovereignty. This is the conclusion of what Peter has said here. This is, as I told you, the key passage really to the letter. He says, therefore, after I've just said all that, therefore, verse 19, let those who suffer according to God's will, don't miss that, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. It is pointed out that entrust here, entrust their souls, it's not the usual word for trusting God, but it's a verb, which means to give to someone for safekeeping, to turn over to someone to care for. It's the same word Jesus used when he said, Father, into thy hands I commit 
entrust my spirit. So now a conclusion is drawn. And let me read this. Those who suffer according to God's will are those who share in Christ's sufferings, verse 12, who are insulted in Christ's name, verse 14, and who suffer as Christians rather than for doing something evil, verses 15 through 16. The reference to God's will here indicates that all suffering passes through his hands. We suffer according to God's will, that nothing strikes a believer apart from God's loving and sovereign control. When suffering strikes, believers should commit themselves to their faithful creator, like Joseph. The reference to God as creator, you notice he, he, he adds that title, he points it out, he's creator, implies his sovereignty. For the creator of the world is also sovereign over it. Therefore, believers can be confident that he will not allow them to suffer beyond their capacity and that he will provide the strength needed to endure, which he does through the spirit that rests on those who suffer for Christ. Such confidence can be theirs because he is not only the creator, he's a faithful creator, Peter says. Faithful to his promises, faithful to his people, never abandoning them in their time of need, always vindicating the righteous and condemning the wicked, which will occur in the end. The way believers will reveal that they are trusting is in God is by continuing to do good, continuing to live for him, continuing to proclaim him, continuing to be a, a supporter of him, a champion for Christ. Even in the midst of their suffering, always entrusting themselves, their souls to their faithful creator. One more. Again, concerning this sovereignty, I just this is a closing statement. I want you to hear it. As these things come into our lives, that is specifically suffering for the sake of Christ. And as I've said, maybe that will increase for us in frequency and intensity as our culture changes. This writer says, Christians do not suffer accidentally or because of the irresistible forces of blind fate. Rather, they suffer according to God's will. That's what 1 Peter, that's what he's saying. While this may at first seem harsh, for it implies that at times it is God's will that we suffer. Yeah. Because he uses it for his good purposes. Upon reflection, no better comfort in suffering can be found than this. It is God's good and perfect will. For therein lies the knowledge that there is a limit to the suffering, both in its intensity and its duration. A limit set and maintained, not by the world, not by the haters, but by the God who is our creator, our savior, our sustainer, our father. And therein also lies the knowledge that this suffering is only for our good. It is purifying us, drawing us closer to our Lord and making us more like him in our lives. You want to talk about comfort, consolation. In all of it, we are not alone, but we can depend on the care of a faithful creator. We can rejoice in the fellowship of a savior who has also suffered. We can exult in the constant presence of a spirit of glory who delights to rest upon us.
Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And Father, I just pray that it would work deep, deep, deep down into our hearts. It would take residence there and it would be there for us. In the days ahead and in our lives, when standing up for Christ, standing up for righteousness, making Him known, living for Him, causes us to suffer. May we find comfort, many comforts here in Peter's words. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.